Take your Bible, turn in it to uh, Isaiah chapter 46, 47 today. Let's rise to our feet and let's pray. Father God, once again, we just say thank you for being with us and visiting us and moving in the midst of us and ministering to us, God. And surely you are worthy of more than we have to offer. So may we, Lord, honor you today with the full attention of our hearts and minds. We pray that you would speak. We thank you for your faithfulness to do that, Lord. It's our heart's desire that you would be glorified. And we thank you, Lord, that this fellowship you will edify through the power of your spirit. And so have your way, Lord. Touch hearts, change lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Have a seat there. Guys, over and over again, God proves the reliability of his word. And in so doing, he comforts and encourages his people. He strengthens and fortifies the faith of his people. And many times the way that God will prove the reliability of his word is by informing us of something we would not know. In fact, we could not know if he hadn't told us. Uh, we call it prophecy. And this assurance, this uh, reliability is often it may be a, a second-tier type benefit, meaning that God's primary purpose in a passage may not always be to assure us that we can trust his word. I mean, he may simply, be, though there are times he will say clearly that that's what his point and his uh, you know, priority is, but sometimes he may be seeking to comfort his people with a particular truth or assure them that he sees them and that he will be there for them each and every step of the way, that none of the goings-on in our lives uh, or of our lives escapes his attention or catches him by surprise. But along the way, he's proving to us that he is not a man that he should lie, that if he says it, you can believe it. And you and me, we can trust in the Word of God. And thus far throughout history, how many of you realize God is batting a thousand? He has never missed in a single prophetic utterance. And when he tells of what's going to happen before it happens, guys, sometimes as you study his word, he might tell someone of something that's going to happen just a few minutes before it happens. Sometimes maybe a few days or a few weeks or a few months or a few years or maybe a few hundred years or beyond. But it has always come to pass. So my question is, what then are the odds that his word will fail now? Uh, guys, if I hit a thousand targets on the bullseye from 300 yards away, I would say, you could say, the odds are pretty good that I'll hit the thousand and first one on the bullseye as well. Now, I'm a fallible man. We're talking about the omniscient, omnipotent, infallible God. And God has made promises in His Word. You know that God promised the first coming of Jesus Christ. We're in the time of year that we look back on that. We celebrate that a little more cognitively, a little more intentionally during the Christmas season. God made a promise, and the promise didn't fail. Jesus came. Now, God has also promised a second coming of Christ. Yet people roll the dice, somehow counting on the fact that though God's word has never missed, well, you know, it probably will this time. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a fool's game to bet against the promise of the word of God. His word goes out of his mouth in righteousness, 
and it shall not return. His counsel stands. Now, I say that by way of reminder because God is telling the nation of Judah that they will go into Babylonian captivity, but he tells them this over a hundred years before it happens. But then he also tells them that Babylon will fall as well, as well. that they will be taken into captivity themselves through the Persian army, and that Cyrus, the king of Persia, will set them, that is, the Israelites, free to return to Jerusalem to rebuild and re-inhabit it. And so we read, you're with me, in Isaiah chapter 46, beginning in the very first verse, he says, <coughs> excuse me, Bel bows down, uh, Nebo stoops, and their idols were on the beasts and on the cattle. Your carriages were heavily loaded, a burden to the weary beast. They stoop, they bow down together. They could not deliver the burden, but have themselves gone into captivity. Well, guys, we may as well get right into it here. Bel and Nebo were two of the most prominent Babylonian gods. Now, let's not be confused with Baal or Baal, the Canaanite, B-A-A-L, the prominent Canaanite god. These were prominent Babylonian gods. They're familiar to you in the name Belshazzar, there in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Belshazzar means uh, Bel's prince, and Nebuchadnezzar or Nebuchadnezzar means may Nebo protect the crown. And basically, what's being said here is that these great gods of theirs, uh, the Babylonians, were going to be humiliated and brought low carried off these gods would be carried off via their idols in wagons they wouldn't even be able to deliver themselves much less the babylonian people in fact they would these gods would become burdensome to the people who were having to cart their gods away as they were being led off into captivity they would be burdens to the beasts as the persians were parading these gods around in humiliation but listen to me, there's a bit of a, of a side point here that I want you to see and maybe consider. Because what we have here in the first couple of verses is the fact that God is, well, he's getting personal in that he is naming the names of these inept, unable to save, completely false gods. And I say that to say this, sometimes people wonder about the ethical nature of naming names from the pulpit, or even in casual conversation, you'll hear things like, well, you know, there's a man, now I'm not going to name names. And my question is, why not? If you know of a false teacher, should you point them out? Should you drop a name? Should you let people know who they are? Family, I'm not talking about branding as a heretic someone who has a differing opinion on the rapture of the church or the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But if there is someone out there, if there is a group of people out there who claim that Jesus is not the sinless Son of God or the only begotten Son of God, fully God, fully man, the only means by which man may be saved, don't you want to know it? I mean, the point isn't to be mean or malicious. It's to protect the sheep from wandering into strange pastures, to help people obtain and maintain a biblical worldview, 
to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, to be effective in the warfare that God has called us to fight and to wage. Now, perhaps you're wondering, oh man, who's he getting ready to call out? Listen, I don't have anyone in mind, okay? Now, we could, of course, speak of, uh, you know, cult leaders of the past. You know, you have the David Koresh kind of guys from Waco or the Hale-Bopp comic kind of crew that went sideways and all. Obviously, we could speak of the Jehovah's Witnesses who uh, don't believe in the deity of Jesus. They believe that he is Michael the Archangel. Uh, Mormons believe that Jesus is Lucifer's brother, which either reduces Jesus to an angelic status or elevates Satan to godhood, both of which are uh, blasphemous. Not to mention, it kind of throws a little bit of a wrench in Jesus being the only begotten Son of God if he has a brother. But guys, the point that I'm making, the principle I'm developing, is that God named names. Paul the Apostle, read his writings, he named names. Read John's writings, he named names. Names, Diotrephes, loves the preeminence. You know, I'm going to call him out. I'm going to confront him when I come there, kind of a thing. A, a, a good shepherd will have a heart to protect the sheep and to warn them of wolves, whether they are uh, outright wolves or wolves in sheep's clothing, whatever the case may be. But guys, as we kind of take our attention back to our present passage, God calls these false gods out. They can't deliver. They can't save. They will be brought low. They will be paraded about, he is saying, as the spoils of war in humiliation. Now, on the other hand, you don't have to carry God. It's quite the opposite. He carries you. Turn your attention to verse 3. He says, listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been upheld by me from birth and who have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he, and even to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made and I will bear, even I will carry and deliver you. Guys, I trust that you get the gist here. If you look to or trust in something less than God, you're going to wind up carrying it. It'll become an unbearable burden to you. But when you look to and trust in the true and living God, you discover that He carries you. He's an overwhelming blessing to you. And so I suppose the question that I want to confront you with is this. Do you carry your God or does your God carry you? Do you have to take your God to the shop now and then? Rick, how many gods do you have to work on throughout the week, I wonder? You know, there in your, in your shop. Do you, 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 you take your God to the shop now and then, or you have to maybe pay for an upgrade or wait for a new update, or maybe your God's constantly draining your pocketbook because you're always having to buy another bottle or a new prescription or some illegal substance. I mean, you get the idea. Do you carry your God? Is he a burden to you, or does your God carry you? Does he provide for and take care of you? And listen, I'll confess that there are many, even in the church, that would represent the Lord like you need to carry Him. And so they have these, I call them begathons. You know, as if to say, if you don't give, well, God, you know, He's going to go broke. Listen to me. I don't need to carry God. God needs to carry me. 
Now, that's not to say that we're not to be givers. Of course we are. In fact, God calls us to be generous givers, but not because He needs us to give. It's not for His sake. It's for our sake. And there are multiple reasons, one of which, okay, time for a testimony. How many of you are willing to confess? We're selfish by nature. I mean, here we are. And God wants us to learn what it means to crucify the flesh and to walk in the Spirit. And surely, selfless, sacrificial giving is an aspect of that. Another reason is that it bears witness to the fact that you and me, that we are being transformed. We're growing. We're becoming more and more like our God. Who? How many of you realize our God is the most generous giver of all? I mean, what do we have but that God has not graciously given it to us? Even salvation, which he has given you freely, though it cost him dearly. It cost him everything. And you will know you're becoming more like your God as you grow in giving. Guys, it could be the giving of your time, your talents, your treasure. How many of you realize that God is worthy of all you have and more? But before we move on, I want to draw your attention to three little words here. They seem to be on repeat in our recent section of Scripture. Look at verse 3. What are the first three words of that verse? He says, listen to me. Underline that. Listen to me. There is so much trouble that we could avoid. So much frustration, exasperation, and turmoil if we would just listen and give heed to the Word of God. I tell you what, too often we're on the side of hearing we do not understand. Meaning we, we won't really listen. We won't take God's Word to heart. And we have to find out the hard way. God says, listen, I would spare you. Just listen to me. And he draws their attention to something we've touched on a time or two lately, that he's been with them, he's upheld and carried them all throughout their lives. Though they may not have recognized it, they may not have realized it, he was there and he will always be there. Listen, God says, from the womb to the tomb, I will carry you and I will deliver you from the cradle to the grave. Isn't that comforting to know? I tell you. Now, we don't always sense him. We can't always feel his presence or see his hand on our lives. Doesn't matter. What do we take the time to develop in our time of introduction? You can trust in the word of God. God watches over his own. You remember God told Jeremiah, before you were formed, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. Guys, God has known you. He has been there for you. He has taken care of you every step of the way. And he will until your dying day. Amen? He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He has carried our sins. He carries our sorrows. He bears our burdens. 
casting all your care upon him, right? First Peter chapter 5 and verse 7, because he cares for you. He will carry you. And look at verse 5. He says, to whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? They lavish gold out of the bag and weigh silver on the scales. They hire a goldsmith and he makes it a god and they prostrate themselves. Yes, they worship. They bear it on their shoulder. They carry it and set it in its place and it stands. From its places shall not move. Though one cries out to it, yet it cannot answer nor save him out of his trouble. Man, man's gods sure can be pricey, can't they? But in the day of trial and tragedy, they aren't worth a dime. Now contrast that with the true God. To whom are we going to liken Him and make His equal? To whom might we compare Him that they should be alike? Listen, there is no one. There is no one like our God. There is nothing with which to compare Him. He is infinite. He is eternal. He is all-powerful. No beginning and no end. And you and me, we can't really even fathom the likes of who He is. But Jesus Christ has revealed Him to us. You have seen me, Jesus said, has seen the Father. And the only way we can really Know Him is through Christ. And He can save you out of all your trouble. And so if you find your soul in turmoil and trouble today, I encourage you, I implore you, as though God were pleading through me, be reconciled to Christ. And He will save you out of all your trouble. Now, look at verse 8. Remember this, and show yourselves men... Recall to mind, O you transgressors, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. What are the words in view here? Remember, recall, remember. And notice he says, and show yourselves men. Guys, the idea here is that to remember the things that God has done, the things that he has said, the fact that he always sees his word through will add strength and courage to your life. So much defeat, listen to me, so much defeat enters through the doorway of forgetfulness. We forget what God has done in the past, and so we fail to trust Him in the present. Remember the former things of old. There is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. Guys, God dwells outside this time-space continuum in which we find ourselves. It's all in the now for Him. We kind of watch the parade it's parade season right now, isn't it? How many of you went to the Joplin Parade? There's a, probably a number of you. you know, and, and there you are. You're on whatever block. You're on 12th Street or 7th Street or 15th Street or wherever you are. And, uh, you know, you can see just so far behind, kind of can tell what's coming up. 
kind of tell what's gone on, but you, you're viewing it in linear fashion. You can only see so far. But God has like the aerial view. He sees, he knows the end from the beginning. But he's not simply casually viewing the parade of human history. He's directing it. He says, my counsel will stand and I will do all my pleasure. The psalmist said that this way. He said, the counsel of the Lord stands forever and the plans of his heart to all generations. Uh, Jesus said that like this. He said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Sometimes we say it like this. God is in control. And when we remember that from the beginning to the end, God is in control, we remember the things that he has said and that he has done, it will add tremendous courage to our lives to live out loud for Jesus Christ. Now, in verse 11... Calling a bird, he says, I will, and this is part of his count, this is what he's saying he's going to do. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed it, and I will do it. Listen to me, there it is, you stubborn hearted, come on somebody, <laughs> who are far from righteousness, I bring my righteousness near, it shall not be far off. My salvation shall not linger, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. Now, we identified Cyrus, right? The Persian king who would conquer Babylon in our last study. He is the bird of prey that he talks about here that's going to take Babylon down. But again, we see this admonition, listen to me. And the word goes out to the stubborn hearted. He says, salvation is coming. God will not delay. Guys, God doesn't delay. He's never late. Okay? He's always right on time. Now, of course, for us, the application would be, if God is knocking on the door of your heart, today is the day of salvation. Don't be stubborn-hearted. Don't delay, right? Uh, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. For them, God was saying, don't worry. Deliverance is coming. Babylon will be brought down. You will rebuild. You will return. You will re-inhabit Jerusalem. He says, I'm going to establish my salvation in Zion. It's, we're, we're coming home, you see. Now, uh, carrying on, guys, chapter 47. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. Same people. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind meal. Remove your veil. Take off the skirt. Uncover the thigh. Pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered. Yes, your shame will be seen. I will take vengeance and I will not arbitrate with a man. Now, why, why does God refer to Babylon as a virgin daughter? 
Well, it wasn't because Babylon was pure. We know that they were riddled with uh, idolatry and sorcery and things of this nature, but it was because she had never been conquered, okay? Her walls had never been breached. But God tells them that's all coming to an end. You're going to be reduced to the status of a slave. You're going to be stripped of your dignity, and I'm not going to stop it. They would be carried away by the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, a little later on in this chapter, I've already alluded to it, but a little later on in this chapter, God's going to explain why this is going to happen. I'm just going to sum it up for you in a single word. Sin. Listen to me. Take a note. Write it down on the margin of your Bible, whatever. Sin always leads to slavery. Sin always leads to slavery. Babylon was given over to pride and arrogance, to pleasure and occultic practices. But sin, and we see it, how many of you remember or are familiar with the life of Samson? There in the book of Judges. And particularly toward the end of his life, you see it. You remember when the Philistines had kind of set him up through Delilah and she had had her way with him in deceiving him and getting him to give to her the the secret of his strength and all. And then after she cut his hair, which really his strength wasn't in his hair, but this was the symbol of his faith, his dedication, his consecration to God. And it was cut. Remember that? And uh, the Bible says one of the saddest uh, verses in Scripture there where it says the Spirit departed from him and he didn't even know it. He was so accustomed to living in sin and in compromise, he didn't discern, he couldn't detect when the Spirit of God just said, you know what, I guess we're done here. And so Delilah cuts his hair and she says, Samson, the Philistines are upon us. And he gets up like he always had and he runs out. And you remember what they did? They took him and the Bible says that they would bind him. Remember? They, they bound him, and then what they do? They gouged out his eyes, and what they do? They put him to work grinding in the mill. What's the take home? Sin will bind you, it will blind you, and it will grind you. All right? Sin always leads to slavery. It will ensnare you and enslave you. It will take from you your dignity and shame you in humility. Listen to me. And God won't stop it. If we insist in our way, God will give us over to the end of our way as well. Better to lead a life of repentance, turning from sin, seeking after the Lord. Look at verse 4. He says, As for our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is His name, the Holy One of Israel. So Isaiah essentially just offering a word of praise here, guys, contrasting the failure of the Babylonian gods with the faithfulness of the God of Israel to deliver his people. Verse 5, sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no longer be called the lady of the kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I have profaned my inheritance and given them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the elderly you laid your yoke very heavily. And you said, I shall be a lady forever. And so you did not take these things to heart, nor remember the latter end of them. A couple of things here, guys. We'll keep trucking. But God begins here to reveal the why behind the what regarding both his people and the fall of Babylon. Babylon. 
He says, the reason that you're going to be brought low is because of your pride. You said, I shall be a lady forever. In other words, uh, Babylon was convinced they were always going to be the queen bee, okay, among the nations. They couldn't be conquered. And God says, listen, you're not taking these things to heart. By the way, God is always looking to, come on, the heart. He says, you're not taking these things to heart. God says, yes, you conquered nations and you took my people into captivity. But listen to me, not because you were so great. God says, it's because I gave them to you. I was angry with them. I was disciplining them on a national level. He says, look what he says here. Underline it, guys. This is so important. He says, you showed them no mercy. Guys, Babylon was all too happy to be the chastening rod in the hand of God. God says, you took it too far. Okay? He says, you didn't even show mercy to the elderly. You made them labor heavily. They abused their, listen, God-given authority. Be careful that you don't abuse your authority. In whatever capacity that you may have it or whatever context it's been given to you, perhaps as a parent or as an employer or as a manager or as a church leader or a government official or whatever. Now, God has no problem. I mean, obviously, that doesn't mean we're not to be just and fair and all of that, but we're not to bully people with the authority that God has entrusted to us. Question, quick show of hands, time for transparency here. You with me? How many of you feel like you could use a heaping helping of mercy from the hand of God? Let's see the hands. Yeah, that's an every hand in the building kind of response, right? What did Jesus say? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive or obtain mercy. James underscored that like this. He said, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Listen to me. If you desire mercy, learn to be merciful. You never go wrong showing mercy. Okay? Babylon was blind and cruel, proud and presumptuous, and God would bring them low. Now, is there a word for America tucked away in there somewhere? I believe there is. Uh, look at verse 8. Therefore, hear this now, you who are given to pleasures, who dwell securely, who say, look at it, in your heart, I am, and there is no one else besides me. I shall not sit as a widow, nor shall I know the loss of children. But these two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon you in their fullness because of the multitude of your sorceries for the great abundance of your enchantments." Given to pleasure, the fruit of prosperity, 
dwelling securely, this false sense of security, the superpower of the world will never be brought down. I am, there is no one else besides me. That's what this smacks of. We are the superpower of the world. We are never going to be brought down. He says, but for all of your children, that is subservient and uh, you know, submitted provinces and nations and such, he says, Babylon will lose it all. Why? Did you see it? Because of the multitude of your sorceries. Again, sin, occultic, demonic activity. Not altogether different than we see in so many celebrities and music industry and so much in our nation even today. Now look at verse 10. For you, oh my. Look at verse 10. For you have trusted in your wickedness. You have said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge have warped you. And you have said, where do they say it? In their heart, I am, and there is no one else besides me. Therefore, evil shall come upon you. You shall not know from where it arises, and trouble shall fall upon you, and you will not be able to put it off, and desolation shall come upon you suddenly, which you shall not know. Are you picking up the emphasis upon the heart here? You have trusted in your own wickedness. Wow. You have said in your heart, right? No one sees me. What is that? That's no accountability. Guys, this is so often, I, you need to see this. This is so often the deceitfulness of sin. We think no one sees what we're doing. And so we're getting away with it. But you can be sure, the Bible says, your sin will find you out. We start thinking we're so clever, you know. This is your wisdom, your knowledge have warped you. You think no one sees you. You think you're getting away with your little secret sin and all. God sees you. He sees me. He knows the goings on of our hearts. And should we sow to the wind, the Bible is clear, we will reap the whirlwind. And in one day, Babylon was conquered. This impenetrable city fell to Cyrus, just like God said it would. Daniel chapter 5, you can write it down, you can read it later. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible is clear. God resists the proud. What does that word resist mean? He sets himself against the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit or an arrogant spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16, 18. Now, verse 12, guys, we're going to follow through here, read the final few verses. Stand now with your enchantments, he says, in the multitude of your sorceries in which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you'll be able to profit. Perhaps you will prevail. You sensing the divine sarcasm here? He says, go ahead, stand with all your enchantments and sorceries. Maybe they'll do you some good. Go ahead, take confidence in them now. You are wearied in the multitude of your counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, the monthly prognosticators stand up and save you from what shall come upon you. Behold, they shall be as stubble. The fire, guys, 
The fire shall burn them. They shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. It shall not be a coal to be warmed by, nor a fire to sit before. Thus shall they be to you, with whom you have labored, your merchants from your youth. They shall wander each one to his quarter, underline it, no one shall save you. All these enchanters and sorcerers and stargazers, you know, horoscopes and such, couldn't see it coming. Remember, they said, I am and there's none besides me. Man, we're the superpower of the world. Nothing's going to happen. Not on our watch. It's never going to take place. He says, you know, why aren't you? Go ahead. Trust in your stargazers, your astrologers, all these people who are, uh, you know, uh, proclaiming the the, the horoscopes for you and all this stuff, all these people that you're looking to for guidance, they can't save themselves, much less you. God would expose their folly in judgment. Now, before we conclude, I want to draw your attention to one last point that we have here. God says, they shall not deliver themselves from the power of the flame. It does not matter how esteemed one may be, how much people may look to them or take confidence in them or their counsel. No one escapes the judgment of God. But this is what I want you to see. Notice what he says here. He says, with regard to this fire, he says, it shall not be a coal to be warmed by, nor a fire to sit before. You know, how many times do you hear the world mocking the judgment of God? Uh, you know, somehow rationalizing, uh, somehow trying to affirm or convince you that hell is going to be kind of a cool thing. You know, a party kind of atmosphere in which to debase themselves throughout all eternity. You know, they'll be with all their friends and all of that. Somehow the fires of judgment will be useful or comforting. Don't be deceived. It will not be a pleasant experience as some have envisioned to their own destruction and demise. How greatly people underestimate the blazing strength of the judgment of God where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And we're going to close here. But I want you to note the finality. Ladies and gentlemen, note the finality of the final words of the chapter. No one shall save you. What a sobering, almost shocking final sentence. Now, uh, allow me to remind you of Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 22, where God says, look to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. Here's the take home. If you will not look to the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, 
then no one will save you. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. And so let's bow our hearts. God, we thank You for the life, the power, and the strength that resides in Your Word. And surely You are God and there is no other, nor is there any other Savior outside of You. And so I pray that you would help us to remember and to recall your word, your ways. God, that we might grow in strength and courage to be who you've called us to be throughout a time such as this. And may we listen and give heed to you. God, we thank you that from before we were born, until we see you face to face, you will carry us. You will never leave us nor forsake us. And we give you praise. And guys, I would just say that while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if God is dealing with you today, hey, listen, I'm just going to call you out. Maybe you've been stubborn hearted. God's been knocking on the door of your heart, but a breakthrough is taking place here today. Listen, I'm, I'm speaking truth to you outside of Jesus Christ. No one will save you. Look to Him. Believe on Him. And be saved. Why put it off another day? Turn to the Lord. Call upon the Lord. Right here, right now, and be saved. I don't know, maybe everybody here does know the Lord. Maybe you all do love the Lord. And you're walking with the Lord. and You have a relationship with Him. That's fantastic. Maybe not. And so if today you're sensing the divine, hey, this moment's for you. Don't harden your heart. Open your heart. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if that's you, I'm going to ask you to humble yourself. God resists the proud gives grace to the humble. Guess what? It's by grace that we're saved through faith. And that not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. God wants to gift you. The most generous giver wants to gift you with everlasting life today. So if you're ready to receive it, to turn from your sin, to trust in Him, I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. If I see your hand, I'll say so. You can put it back down. But I want to give you a second here to say, you know what? I'm done kicking against the goads. Today's this, this moment's for me. Anyone I can pray for? God bless you, man. God bless you. I see you. Anyone else? All right. Father, we thank you so much that you love us, and that you sent Jesus Christ. To live and die and rise again on behalf of us, paying the penalty of all our sin. Surely you have borne our griefs, you have carried our sin, our sorrow, and we give you praise. 
Guys, I don't know what goes on in the, in the hearts and minds of any of you ultimately. And I'm just going to lead you in this prayer. And I don't know, man, you know, even if you didn't acknowledge a need specifically in the moment, but you know you need to, you know, you can still pray. You can still believe on the Lord. You don't need to limit it to a single window of opportunity, though I can't guarantee you any time beyond this, obviously. But the Bible says we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. If we'll confess our sin, He's faithful, He's just to forgive us, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So why don't we just start right there? Just confess to God who you are, that you are a, a sinner, that you sin, that you fall short of His glory. Say, God, here I am. And I am a sinner. I do fall short. And that's such a polite way of putting it. God, I fall so short of your glory. I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin. I turn from my sin. I believe, Lord, on you. And I'm asking you to come into my heart, into my life, to fill me with the precious person of your Holy Spirit. That you would empower me to lead my life for you from this day forward till I see you face to face. And thank you, Lord, for putting my name in your book of life. Wow, Lord, we're so grateful that you would put our names in your book of life. And so, Father, I just lift up every heart that's here. I pray, God, that you would teach us what it means to truly walk with you, to give honor to you, to bring glory to you, to be a blessing to you, to lead lives that are well-pleasing to you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Help us to be a people who hunger for repentance who yearn to walk with you intimately. We love you so much, Lord. We thank you that you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.